as we look to our Lord in prayer. So now, Father, what we want from you, what we need from you, what we seek from you is wisdom. A wisdom that comes from above. It was James who had said that if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. And so, Father, in a very loving way, we're praying for people today in this congregation, these services. Even on this time entering the spring break, in comings and goings, who've experienced loss in one way, shape, or form. Maybe it's something of physical health. Maybe it's of material wealth. Maybe it's something job-related. Maybe it's someone who was at the table yesterday, but no longer today. And they need something from your word. In these moments to come, Father, warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. As again, now, Father, we've come here to see Jesus and him only. I'm praying these things still again now in Jesus' name. Amen. It was January 28th of 1986 when President Reagan was preparing, putting the finishing touches to his State of the Union address. When Donald Reagan, Chief of Staff, raced into the Oval Office and, and required the president to tune in what was now appearing on the screen, not only nationally, but globally. And as they turned on the television sets, lo and behold, there was the explosion of the space shuttle Challenger appearing before their very eyes. This would require incredible presidential care, presidential grace and presidential wisdom. And now the president was forced to make a significant decision in the light of the State of the Union, what should be done and how should this matter be addressed. He decided to postpone his State of the Union address. And Donald Reagan, typical form, a gruff sort of man, said, where is she? Where is that woman of grace and wisdom? We need her now. Peggy Noonan was summoned. Peggy Noonan has written extensively for the Wall Street Journal, National Review, and other publications. She is a woman of incredible elegance and eloquence who knows how to put pen to paper who knows a way and be able to express her thought in internet form, to be able to compose something that combines what Regan and Reagan were looking for, the combination, you see, of grace and wisdom, which are so critical when one experiences loss. Personally, nationally, globally. 
To this day, she is distinguished by that skill mix. And then equipped to go on television, frankly worldwide, the president would then say, ladies and gentlemen, I'd plan to speak to you tonight to report on the State of the Union. But the events of earlier today have led me to change those plans. Today is a day for mourning and remembering. Nazi and I are pained to the core by the tragedy of the shuttle Challenger. We know we share this pain with all of the people of our country. This is truly a national loss. Scroll down. For the families of the seven, and that included, you might recall, those that were alive back then, Krista McAuliffe, schoolteacher, one of those who lost their lives. For the families of the seven, we cannot bear, as you do, the full impact of this tragedy. But we feel the loss, second time now, the word loss is used. Think Job. We feel the loss. And we're thinking about you so very much. This president's becoming a pastor. Your loved ones were daring and brave, and they had that special grace. That special spirit that says, give me a challenge, and I'll meet it with joy. And they had a hunger to explore the universe and discover its truths. They wished to serve, and they did. They served all of us. It was a brilliant speech, a poignant speech, a memorable speech. And towards the end, as he began to wrap up the thoughts of looking for a way to be able to care for the wounds of the nation, the crew of the Space Shuttle Challenger honored us by the manner in which they lived their lives. We will never forget them nor the last time we saw them this morning as they prepared for their journey and waved goodbye and, quote, slipped the surly bonds of earth, unquote, to touch the face of God. May God bless this nation, he would say. This was a one, an individual who was equipped by a woman filled with what Regan, chief of staff, described as a woman of grace and wisdom to be able to address human laws. In relational contexts that God places you and me in, What's necessary is to be able to pour, sense that combination of grace and wisdom into the wounded ones that God brings into our paths, you see. But how do you go about doing that? It's a great, great question we've got to be able to answer. From chapter 12 now, and Job's response to Zophar's challenge, 
I want to draw out three equippings that are found here that allow you and me then to be able to minister to those who have experienced severe loss so that we are able then to touch where people are truly hurting. And the first equipping is found in verse 1, and you're going to take it in this 12th chapter down through verse 6. Because when we need wisdom in the midst of personal trials, let's equip ourselves now, first of all, to evaluate the wisdom claimed by others. Let's say you're experiencing loss right now. Loss of a job. Or loss of a family member. Maybe a father or a mother. Maybe a child. Maybe it's a friend. Co-worker. Spouse. But what you have in common, loss. And what you desperately need is what Peggy Noonan equipped the president to do. To bring together a sense of grace with wisdom. Now, Job's in choppy waters. And frankly, he's put off by what Zophar has had to say. I find that the shorter the statements in the book of Job, given to Job, the longer the responses provided by Job. Zophar uses one chapter to challenge Job. Job uses three chapters to respond to Zophar. But in chapter 12, what I want you to notice here now is that Job has the ability to evaluate, to discern what's true and what's false in Zophar's counsel. And Zophar is a religious counselor. Which means then that if you are seeking or you are gaining or counsel from somebody who is religious, do not assume that it is biblical counsel just because it is religious counsel. But now, you get the sarcasm that's, that's flowing from the lips of Job in verse 2. You can almost see him folding his arms. Uh, no doubt you're the people. And wisdom will die with you. What's he saying? As if these guys are claiming that they've got the inroads to where real wisdom's found, and Job lacks it. That they're the source of wisdom, and Job's disconnected from it. So what happens when you guys die? Does that mean the world's going to be bereft of wisdom? That's what, he's, that's what he's implying at this point, you see. Sometimes you're going to find hurting people will be sarcastic when they're given this kind of counsel that's religious but not necessarily biblical. He's showing his humanness here, and he continues on in verse 3, but I have understanding as well as you. I'm not inferior to you, who does not know such things as these. In other words, there's this simplistic formula in Job's time that we've, that we've analyzed and the simplistic formula is simply that suffering is based upon sin. So you address the sin, you address the suffering, and you remove the suffering as a result. The problem is you've read chapter 1 of Job, and you know that God, of all, God viewed Job as blameless. Not sinless, but blameless. And that Job's suffering is not due to his sin. Rather, it's due, in fact, to being blameless. 
And that's why Satan's targeting him, you see. And so now, Job is already beginning to challenge the assumptions and the simplistic formulas of why people think there's such suffering in this world. And so he says, I'm not inferior to you. Who does not know such things as these? You're just parroting the same stuff that's out there among the pundits on, on, on the newscasts. But he's hurting. He's hurting. At the same time, this is a man who feels somewhat secure in his relationship with God because on one hand he says that regarding his relationship to others, I'm a laughing stock to my friends. And you will find those that have experienced loss that for a period of time will be hypersensitive to what others might be saying about them. It may not be accurate, not what they are really saying about them, or even if they're saying anything about them, because generally speaking, people are too busy talking about themselves to be talking about you or me. But here Job now, in his sense of sensitivity, says, I'm a laughing stock to my friends, I who called to God. And get this. He's recalling now answers to prayer in his relationship to the sovereign God. He answered me. That means then that in the midst of a confusing world, when you experience loss, you need to be secure in your relationship with God. Again, Hillsong worship. Who am I that the highest king would welcome me? We've reflected upon these words. I was lost, but he brought me in. Oh, his love for me. Oh, his love for me. Who the sun sets free, oh, is free indeed. I am a child of God. Yes, I am. And when you're experiencing loss in life, and you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you need to find your security and your relationship with him. Because the basis of your internal security is your eternal security. That is followed in being a child of God based upon putting your faith and trust exclusively in Jesus Christ as your Savior and as your Lord. And so now he can handle the supposed sarcasm when he says, I'm a laughingstock to my friends on one hand because he can now look upward and say, I who called to God, he answered me. And now you're on to something. What comes next, aren't you? Because you read the four distinctives of Job from the, from the perspective of God regarding who Job is. Because Job, back in chapter 1, in verse 1, we had noted that this was one who was blameless, upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. First two of the four descriptives, blameless and upright. And now what does Job say? A just and blameless man. I'm a laughingstock. Now, he's not saying I'm sinless. But in this situation, he's saying I am blameless. Takes a deep breath. You've got to do the same when you're hurting. Make the distinction between blameless and sinless. When you've experienced loss 
and you know your decisions are not necessarily to be directly correlated to the losses you've experienced. Because in verse 5, in the thought of one who is at ease, there's contempt for misfortune. It is ready for those whose feet slip. The tents of robbers are at peace. What's he doing? Job, in the midst of his pain, is demonstrating incredible wisdom. He's looking at Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, the three religious counselors, and their simplistic argument is that, is that suffering is based upon sin. Sin beyond sinful nature. Sinful acts in particular. Now, Rabbi Kushner wrote the book addressing the issue, why do bad things happen to good people? Job flips it. Why do good things happen to bad people? If you are so simplistic in your formulas to make assumptions about uh, why do bad things happen to good people, and your assumption is, well, then I must not be a good person. Then my question is, then why do good things happen to bad people, Zophar? Because the tents of robbers are at peace. See what he's doing here? He's demonstrating incredible logic in the give and the take, in the pain of life. And those who provoke God are secure who bring their God in their hand. In other words, what he's doing at this point is that he's demonstrating the ability to evaluate whether or not his counselors are revealing true wisdom. Or is it a mixed bag of true and false wisdom, of right and wrong wisdom? You've got to be able to do the same when you're hurting. Teddy Roosevelt once said, wisdom is nine-tenths a matter of being wise in time. Most of us are too often wise after the event. Unquote. And there's wisdom there, you see. Because what we're trying to do with our Job series is not provide wisdom based upon hindsight, but do better than that and offer wisdom based upon insight. Biblical insight. The world operates on eyesight, and when they seek wisdom, they'll use hindsight, but the Christian is able to provide insight to get into the heart of the matter, you see. The early church understood the tremendous need for wisdom. D.E. Hosty likewise knew the importance for mission leaders. When a person in authority demands obedience of another, irrespective of a latter's reason and conscience. This is tyranny. On the other hand, when by the exercise of tact and sympathy, prayer, spiritual power, and sound wisdom, one is able to influence and enlighten another so that a life course is changed. Now that's leadership. And it was Paul who would write that God would fill you with knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That means then you're going to have to be able to evaluate, evaluate the counsel and the comments when people are critical and you're hurting. It was the time of the Civil War. Lincoln was hurting. He was being blamed for so much loss. 
And so in the midst of being blamed for all the loss, when he delivered the Gettysburg Address, what strikes me is that he was, it was met initially with hostile reviews. The Patriot Union said of his speech, quote, we pass over the silly remarks of the president. For the credit of the nation, we are willing that the cloud of oblivion shall be dropped over them, and they shall no more, more be repeated or thought of. The Chicago Times said, quote, the cheek of every American must tingle with shame as, as he or she reads the silly, flat, and dishwatery statements of the man who is to be pointed out to intelligent foreigners as the President of the United States. They are critiquing the Gettysburg Address. But Lincoln stood strong and carried on in the midst of the loss of life. And his biographers say increasingly, turn to God in the times of loss. Do you? Well, verses 1 through 6 then equip us then this way. When you and I, we need wisdom in the midst of personal trials, let's equip ourselves first of all to evaluate wisdom claimed by others, even if they are religious counselors or religious friends. Evaluate and distinguish the true from the false, the right from the wrong, and the good, the better, and the best. Okay? Use insight. And once you do, you're ready then for the second equipping. And it comes out of verses 7 through 12. The second of all, when you and I, we need wisdom in the midst of personal trials, we're going to equip ourselves to secondly apply the wisdom revealed through nature. So it catches you off guard initially, doesn't it? He's a hurting man, so why does he say this? But ask the beasts. They'll teach you. Birds of the heavens, they'll tell you. Or the bushes of the earth, they'll teach you. And the fish of the sea will declare to you. What's all this about? What he's saying to the supposed dispensers of wisdom is let nature teach you a thing or two about God's wisdom. It reveals God's wisdom. I was struck by that when just prior going to Israel, I was reading that Israel has established various refuges for animal preserves throughout the land. One particular scientist had noted that of the 120 animals mentioned in the Old Testament, most have disappeared from the Holy Land over the course of 2,000 years. So now they're reestablishing preserves. And so the Israeli government, establishing about 160 preserves throughout the country, now there's gazelles, Somali wild donkeys, on and on. Donkey, the type that Jesus would have ridden into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, and quoting an official on Israel's Nature Preserves Authority, the individual said, quote, We need these preserves so kids can see what nature was like in biblical times. We need to allow them to examine nature and develop wisdom. That's what Job is doing here to his friends. 
Or I'd take the movies, like a dog's purpose. All I could do now was offer him comfort. The assurance that as he left this life, he was not alone, but rather was tended by the dog who loved him more than anything in the whole world. And again from dog's purpose. Dogs have important jobs like barking when the doorbell rings. But cats have no function in a house whatsoever. And a dog's way home. I knew, though, that life was never that easy. That instead of doors being open for you to get anywhere, you had to jump over fences. What's he doing? Well, the producer of those movies is basically doing what Job is now doing. But ask the beasts, they'll teach you. I can imagine now how Zophar's feeling at this point. He has looked condescendingly upon Job. And now Job is saying to Zophar, let the beasts teach you. The birds of the heavens, they'll tell you. The bushes of the earth, they'll teach you. The fish of the sea will declare to you, question, who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, has done this. And now what's he done? Though his friends have failed to do this, they have failed to use the relational covenantal name for God in their counsel. Job reintroduces it. And sometimes when you're hurting, and those around you think they're dispensing wisdom, you're going to have to reintroduce capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D into the full understanding of what this universe is all about, not only universally, but also personally, and ponder the hand of the Lord and what he has done, as Job's pointing out in verse 9. Or as Richard Baxter would point out, as he was experiencing his loss, the loss of his life. As people gathered around to comfort him, speaking of the good that he had achieved by means of his writings, here's what Baxter did as he shook his head. No, I was but a pen in God's hand. And what praise is due to a pen? Question mark. Which links to chapter 12, verse 9. Who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? And now draw a line from verse, from verse 9 back to verse 6, where in verse 6, the tents of robbers are at peace, and those who provoke God are secure, who bring their God in their hand to Job being in the Lord's hand. Are you in the Lord's hand? Because he goes on to say at this point in verse 10, in his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Now his questions. Does not the ear test words as the palate tastes food? Wisdom is with the aged. It doesn't say from the aged. 
Wisdom's with the aged and understanding and length of days. But it's not only the quantity of time, it's the quality of experience in one's relationship to the Lord. And now there's your second equipping. Number one, you evaluate the wisdom claimed by others. One through six, you do it because you've developed your understanding of Scripture and how it relates to the suffering of this world. Number two, you apply the wisdom revealed through nature, verses 7 through 12, as Job has done. But now thirdly, from verse 13 through 25, that when you and I, when we need wisdom in the midst of our personal trials, we equip ourselves thirdly now to trust the wisdom inherent in God. And what does he do? He starts with God. In verse 13, with God our wisdom and might. What is that wisdom? Chokmah, Hebrew word. Masterful understanding, skill, expertise to be able to address the losses of life that come your way and my way. With God, our wisdom and might, he has counsel and understanding. And now notice how God in his wisdom is both destructive and constructive. If he tears down, none can rebuild. If he shuts a man in, none can open. If he withholds the waters, they dry up. If he sends them out, they overwhelm the land. With him are strength and sound wisdom. The deceived and the deceiver, he would say at this point, are his. And now what Job is about to do is utterly astounding. He will now list 11 categories of leaders. The most respected time on kind of the earth. And in essence will say all of them, not some of them, all of them God deprives of their reasoning skills. Check it out. Verse 17. He leads counselors away and stripped. And judges, he makes fools. He looses the bonds of kings and binds a waistcloth on their hips. He leads priests away stripped, overthrows the mighty, both the religious leaders and the secular leaders. He deprives of speech those who are trusted and takes away the discernment of the elders. You're taking a deep breath as you're looking at the landscape politically and internationally. And then you think about the game of chess. When as soon as the game is playing, all the pieces are standing in order. King, queen, bishops, knights, pawns. But once the game is over, they all get scooped up and put back into the box. And now what God is doing at this point is saying, I'm putting them back in the box. And so you read on. In verse 21, he pours contempt on princes, loosens the belt of the strong, uncovers the deeps out of darkness and brings deep darkness to light. He makes nations great and he destroys them. And so you're watching a debate on your favorite channel and, and they're 
you've got one side and the other side when they're dealing with the whole matter, making America great again. And you say, it says here, he makes nations great. He destroys them. If you're like me, 2015, I was in Great Britain. And I was pondering what once was and what now is. 2016, walking the streets of Rome, looking at the various archaeological finds and spotting the excavations of what once was a great empire. In the next, in the next year, Greece, and pondering the significance of the once mighty Greek empire. But they are now in ruins. You explore the ruins. And you're thinking, what's going on here? What lasts and what doesn't? But then I'm reminded of Shelley's Ozymandias, who tells of a traveler from an ancient land, and he says he saw in a desert country the remains of a huge statue, two vast stone legs standing, and on the sand half sunk, he saw a shattered head whose ugly, sneering face accurately portrayed its original. And on the pedestal, he read the proud lines, quote, My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. But we're told many centuries had worn down the statue. This was all that remained. Who on earth has ever heard of Ozymandias? Sounds like some minor league shortstop from Venezuela. But now you reach this point. You're looking at this, and it says he takes away from the chiefs of the peoples of the earth, and then your mind goes to various passages such as, for kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will, Proverbs 21.1. Of Daniel chapter 4, verse 17, the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. And then there was Jesus who would answer, you have no authority over me at all unless it's been given you from above. He would say to Pontius Pilate, and then Paul, in the midst of the Roman Empire, would write, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. And so now what Job brilliantly does, as he refutes the supposed wisdom of those who are his counselors is saying, you're being overly simplistic in your understanding of why there's suffering in this world. Take a good hard look at the sovereignty of God, at the greatness of God. Greatness comes, greatness goes, but God remains. God alone is great. And so what does he do at this point for you and for me? For those that are hurting, he has moved then from the whole realm of nature to the whole realm of international politics and then offers three figures of speech that underscore the lostness of the wisest of the world apart from insight that God alone can give. First of all, you're going to notice the second half of verse 24. God sends them wandering through a trackless wasteland. Do you see it there? And then you ponder the boasting of a Nebuchadnezzar 
who then found himself wandering in a wasteland. And then a second figure of speech. They grope in the dark without light. And a third figure of speech. He makes them stagger like a drunken man. And so he says to these so-called religious counselors, wisdom is found in God. Nowhere else. The illustrations from nature, the illustrations from politics, it's time you go back to first things. You need a Peggy Noonan to write your script. Ladies and gentlemen, I plan to speak to you tonight to report on the State of the Union. But the earlier events of today have led to change those plans. Today is a day for mourning and remembering. We know we share this pain with all of the people of our nation. This is truly a, a national loss. And then the crew of the Space Shuttle Challenger honored us by the manner in which they lived their lives. We will never forget them, nor the last time we saw them this morning as they prepared for their journey and waved goodbye and slipped the surly bonds of earth to touch the face of God. As a Regan challenges a Reagan, where is that woman? the woman of grace and wisdom. She needs to write something. Write something so that we can address this nation. Let's stand together. We need to be people who combine grace and wisdom. You've given us the script, the scriptures. We can't separate the essence of wisdom from the source of wisdom, the sovereign God, who understands the ultimate form of life, loss, when he gave his only begotten son to die for our sins. So, Father, wisdom is found in putting in our faith exclusively in Jesus Christ, Him alone for salvation, being given access to You, and then as a result, drawing on the wisdom that comes from You in order to be able to address the loss of life that we experience day in, day out. So for anybody here right now who's been experiencing loss in one way, shape, or form, May they turn now to the source of wisdom. For you alone understand the whys behind the, why, the what's and the hows of life. And trust in you. And we'll give you the praise now in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.